As an innovative technology disruptor and leading workforce management solution, BookJane has fast and easy time-saving tools that optimize efficiencies while elevating quality of care for aging patients and senior care residents. To find out more, speak to a BookJane expert at 1-855-265-5263 or sales at bookjane.com. There's probably something about thinking about care, not as a sort of destination point, but as somewhere which gives you a kind of replenishment and a rebuilding and support until the point where we need constant support. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us that, especially when it comes to long-term care and how we care for our aging population, things need to change. Around the globe, the pandemic has been relentless in hurling challenge upon challenge at our systems of care for our seniors. This has forced our leaders and frontline staff to find innovative and out-of-the-box solutions in real time to respond to the need to protect our residents and our seniors. In this episode, I have the honour of sitting down with Vic Rayner, OBE, to discuss the United Kingdom's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on its long-term care and aged care system. Vic is the CEO of the National Care Forum, a nonprofit that is focused on providing leading care to seniors for over 27 years. Vic has also become a prominent voice in the broader aged care sector, including through leadership in the board of the Global Aging Network. Vic and I will discuss future needs of our aging populations, including stigma and ageism, infrastructure and the role that technology will and can play, and we will be comparing the United Kingdom with Canada. Vic, welcome to the show. I have to say I'm so delighted today to be joined by Vic Rayner, OBE, Order of the British Empire, CEO of the National Care Forum in the United Kingdom, uh, the leading association for not-for-profit social care providers in the UK. Vic also sits on the board of Hestia, the care workers charity, and sits on the board of the Global Aging Network. And it's been I would say uh, uh, one of the greatest privileges I have is coming to know and and work with Vic in the context of the Global Aging Network. And I believe, Vic, it was September 2019 when we first met in Toronto, Canada, when uh, Global Aging Network and the Ontario Long-Term Care Association co-hosted a workforce forum. And who knew that it would... uh, presage so much of what we've been through globally uh, with regard to the pandemic. So um, thank you so much for making time available to to join us. I know how busy you are, but this is a really important discussion, uh, I believe, uh, to bring more voices together and, and to share our experiences because it's, it's so remarkable just uh, how much we really do have in common. Absolutely. 
So Vic, I'm wondering if maybe you could talk to us about what does the care system look like for for seniors and and the aging population in the United Kingdom? So it's um, it's it's different in the four countries. So I can talk a little bit about some of those some of those differences in terms of the way it's funded and and so forth. But in terms of the delivery, the models are fairly uniform across the UK. So older people will will generally access care at a point of crisis in their lives. So often they'll come into the care system through some ill health crisis or bereavement or or mental health crisis that precipitates their need for additional care. And they'll experience it in a number of different ways. So we have a big and growing home care market or domiciliary care market, however you refer to it. So where people are being cared for either within their own homes or within what we would refer to as uh, extra care housing type environment. So um, places where people maintain their tenancy or perhaps own their accommodation, but it's a congregate site. So there's a lot of people living there who have got similar range of interests and, and needs, and then home care comes into that. All people will receive care through residential settings, so care homes, and we distinguish between care homes and care homes with nursing. So um, we have a, a slight distinction there, obviously, the ones with nursing having to have nurses on site. So mostly people will get care through one of one of those mechanisms or indeed go on a journey. And as their needs increase, uh, take on perhaps move towards a residential model of, of care provision there. The funding for it, which I know is different from the conversations that you and I have had uh, in relation to, to Canada, is that social care is means tested in, in the UK. So that means that their people are required to pay for their own care unless their savings or their assets go below a certain level. Now, that varies between residential comp- care, which at which point you have to sell your home if you have one uh, to sell um, and your assets have to go down to a level of £23,350, at which point the local authority will come in and public services will pay for your care. In home care, it's slightly different because people will keep their own home, but again, their assets, their savings are reduced to a, a point where the state will step in and pay for some of their care. So you have a continuum, but it 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 really is a mixture of, of services. It's not just the way it is in Ontario and in Canada. We have home care, and then we have what we call assisted living or supportive living, which I think sounds very similar to your extra care housing congregate setting. And then we have our care homes. So when you think about the structure that you have, how did it fare in the midst of the pandemic? You know, we certainly saw a lot in the media around the losses of life in care homes. But I'm curious as to your thoughts on what worked and what didn't and why didn't it work? Yeah, so, I mean, very sadly, there were large numbers of deaths within care homes themselves across the UK, as I know there were across Europe and, and, and many other parts of the world. In the home care settings, it's always been it's, it's slightly different. You know, it's different to capture those figures. And in the extra care environment and um, where people have their own tenancies and their own front door in that sense, it's, it's a similar story to home care. I mean, I think the challenge that we face certainly in the UK care home market is that most people who are living in care homes 
have very high levels of comorbidities, so living with some very complex health conditions generally. Approximately 80% of people living within care homes in the UK have dementia as well. So it's a very highly specialised form of support in that way. And certainly we, again, like much of the world in, in the care home environment, found ourselves in March, April last year facing a virus that people didn't understand at all and finding ourselves in a position where other services, health services particularly, were removed, didn't come into the homes, wouldn't cross the threshold. And people didn't understand how the virus was impacting on older people uh, and how the symptoms were manifesting. So a lot of big challenges there alongside real problems around accessing the level of um, PPE, the personal protective equipment that people required. And I think the, the harsh reality of all of this is that, you know, COVID hit the care sector when the care sector itself was under extreme pressure around the workforce that we have, the number of vacancies that we had within the workforce, and around the very significant reductions in funding to that care sector that have happened over the last 10 years. So it hit it at a real low, and therefore some of the ability to respond as quickly or, or to, under, you know, to, to, to utilise or bring in all the resources necessary to support wasn't possible. So Vic and I discussed insights uh, that she had to share with regard to the current system in the United Kingdom, the outdated models of care, the role of essential family caregivers, the impact of isolation on our seniors, the isolation of care homes from other parts of the healthcare continuum, the vulnerability of our residents, but also the passion and commitment of the front line to care for and to innovate in their care for the supports of the people in their homes. Although there are some major differences between the seniors' care system in the United Kingdom and Canada, especially how it's funded, I believe that we can also draw significant parallels between the two. Both systems, both countries, face substantial challenges in terms of escalating health issues, increasing complexity and comorbidities or co-occurring illnesses, uh, very complex needs of our residents in our long-term care and care homes, and the high level of dementia among those for whom we care. In both Canada and the United Kingdom, the COVID-19 pandemic made these issues all the more apparent and highlighted the areas most need of reform. You know, there's so many parallels. Uh, it, it really is quite remarkable when we look at uh, how things unfolded in each country. As we watched the pandemic unfold in Canada, we really felt that we were about two months behind the United Kingdom. And that, that worries us today. So we're uh, taping this in July of 2021. Uh, we will be uh, running this in September. So two months, we, we will see where, where Ontario lands and whether or not we will be in a situation where the United Kingdom is today in July. And, you know, you spoke about the pandemic, the Delta variants, the variants of concern. And as, as, as each country begins to open up. We're bringing in visitors into the home and yet very little has, has actually changed other than uh, the reality of the vaccine. Certainly that's that's our reality in Ontario. We're trying 
trying to um, recruit care staff. We're hemorrhaging care staff right now. Um, people are leaving the sector. They're exhausted. So what was a crisis in even in January 2020 prior to the pandemic has just now escalated exponentially, regardless of whatever efforts we're making to uh, build out a new workforce. And I, and I think that's right. It's that kind of you know, this it's the layers on on top, isn't it? And I, and I think there's, you know, th- things do feel different in the context of what's happening within the home. So you're right to say, you know, where we are now in July, in England particularly, we're seeing growing numbers of outbreaks again within homes, but but small numbers of people, uh, and largely staff rather than residents. But of course, that brings the challenges of managing that. But we do have high levels of vaccination, particularly of residents and growing numbers of vaccination within staff. And I think those are the things that are that is the main defence that is is different. But of course, you know, the rest of the country and, and, and as you say, the rest of the world, in a sense, is opening up again. And my other worry is that care homes and, and the care sector kind of gets left behind in that debate. And we have to then negotiate what working in an environment that is completely open everywhere but in the care home or the or the care setting is like in reality. So you and I have talked a number of times about visiting, for example, and we've now got to the stage where we have a, a piece of guidance that links us into the la- what we've called the last stage of the role uh, of the opening up. So that but that still has limitations in terms of how visitors come in, doesn't limit the number, but they have to be tested. It has. It still contains things around isolation for people who come out of hospital and return into care homes. There are still quite significant restru- restrictions compared to the way in which homes operated pre-pandemic, and yet there doesn't feel like there's a government kind of ownership or, or a societal ownership, indeed, of trying to get people back to having the lives that they had pre-any of this. There's such a tension between uh, managing the quality of life and the quality of care and that the response to lock everybody out really didn't take into consideration the, the psychological health and well-being of anybody and everyone who, who comes into the, the care home. In Ontario and in Canada, we really saw the emergence of the what we're calling the essential family caregiver. So as we moved into the second wave, which, which would have been for us in September of, of 2020, we actually moved and introduced those essential caregivers as part of the care continuum and brought them into the homes. And it was mandated that they be allowed to come in and, and support the care, which was a good thing for us. And we we're very supportive of that. But again, it added more work because of all of the screening and testing that had to and continues to uh, take place in our homes. A lot more uh, surveillance and, and a lot more work has been placed on our front lines. Absolutely. And, and you know, we we are in July, as you say, and we've, and uh, well, this will be very real for you as well. We, we've just gone through a very hot week. You've had a, a very significant period of very hot weather, and these care staff are having to wear full PPE uh, and continue to operate in that environment whilst the rest of the population is busy trying to stay as cool as possible in, you know, shorts and a T-shirt. It's, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard on that workforce to, to maintain that level of vigilance, that, that, level of consistency around IPC and they're doing it 
because they care and because it's a key part of their professional accountability. But it's hard. You know, I don't think we should forget that when we're busy trying to think about how to get into nightclubs or how to, you know, go to a festival again. There's people who are having to continue to work in that way and residents and, and people who receive care who are either because of the restrictions that have continued to be placed on their on their ability to come and come and go within homes or because they themselves are clinically vulnerable are are having to stay out of all of that stay out of society in a way which pre-pandemic I don't think we would have ever considered to be acceptable in terms of people's rights yeah it's it's you know that that notion of ageism and how we support our seniors it's you know we're we're anticipating a real shift in what people are going to find acceptable in the beginning as the baby boomers begin to age and we have this this new wave of an aging population coming in where we're not ready for that and what we're seeing is a real reluctance of individuals who are in, who may well be in hospital today who who really do require a care home setting and they have no interest in coming into our care homes so there's such a stigma now where even if they they have to come in they'd prefer to stay in hospital than transfer into a care home given what we've been through yeah and i mean i think that you know that is something that we all need a lot of support to to move past because the environment of a home you know a really great well you'll have seen great examples of of fantastic care that has continued to be delivered and is incredibly empowering and does change people's lives i think we've got to all work together globally i suspect to identify to, to, to share some of those stories and share some of that perspective. But also if that is a model that people don't want going forward in the same kind of way, and there are, we need to make sure there's some other realistic choices. Staying in hospital isn't a choice, isn't a choice for people there, the way you've described it in that context. It's it's the least worst scenario in their mind. And, and what we've got to do is to create the best scenarios and the best choices for people and certainly I think in the in the UK there is a lot of thinking about how that supportive housing that extra care housing or retirement type village um, model or uh, you know a, a greater focus on home first um, caring for people within their own homes you know all those things are part of a kind of narrative about what the future would look like and care homes may end up playing a different role a more respite-orientated, short-term support role for people as they recover or recuperate from being in hospital or through a crisis. But what none of those other models are very good at is supporting people to live well with dementia in those environments. So I think there's a very big cohort of people that certainly the care home sector in, in the UK caters for that I think this debate about care homes not being the thing that people want doesn't properly encapsulate. Vic and I talked about the role of different stakeholders in working together to change the way we support our aging population and how we construct our system of care from living to end of life. 
As Vic highlighted, one of the major hurdles standing in the way of improvements and modernization in the United Kingdom's system of aged care is the issue of stigma and ageism surrounding care homes and the people for whom we care. If we are to implement better policies and practices in shaping the way we care for our aging population, we really do need to work together to find like-minded individuals to build a sense of common purpose where we are all very aligned in wanting to and seeing a way to dismantle the strong stigma and ageist attitudes that are still so rampant in society. We need to work together to free families of the guilt they so often feel about the need to move their loved one into a care home or a long-term care home. It's not what people want, but it may well be what people need and what families need. Unfortunately, and my, my family is a point in case where we simply couldn't care for my father anymore at home. He had uh, advanced Alzheimer's. He had become violent. It wasn't safe for him and it wasn't safe for my mother. And we just didn't, as a family, we just didn't have the tools. And we had kept him home as long as possible, tapping into uh, respite programs and day programming and volunteers and and, uh, friends who would come and support us. But in the end, it, it really, we had no option in the end but to find a safer place for him. Uh, And it was a long-term care home where he ultimately transferred, where he he lived until the end of his life. And it was very difficult for us. It was difficult for everybody. And somehow we've got to find a way where we don't feel that if if someone has to move into a care home and because they require the care and support that we feel guilty or we feel that we failed somehow. That notion of failure is something that that really uh, fell hard on our sector, uh, especially in Ontario, where we lost almost 4,000 lives in the long-term care during the first and second waves of the pandemic. And uh, the criticism in the media all fell on the frontline staff. It fell on those who operated the, the organizations. And, and also, in many cases, the families felt that they had failed too. How do we do a reset? And reimagine the future in a much more positive and and thoughtful and optimistic way. I'm really curious as to how do we manage the change that we need to see and knowing that it has to happen in real time. But if if we don't move, how are we going to replenish our and and build and rebuild our workforce? How are we going to better support families? How are we going to support an aging population? And and how do we do it in a way that is respectful where to your point we don't have decision makers saying, fine, we gave you the vaccine, we locked you in, we got you through, and now we're going to focus on something else. So you just sort yourself out. I think the whole debate about how do we get positive about ageing is is huge, isn't it? And, you know, it's interesting how I get more interested in it the older I get. <laughs> and I mean, I think that's part of the reality, isn't it, that that in a sense, what, what we are looking at is lots and lots of government and political decisions and societal decisions, which are very ostrich-like. And, you know, it isn't going to happen to me if I look away or put the right anti-aging cream on or, or whatever it might be, whatever it is that we think will defer the the inevitable aging. And, and I you know, there's lots of stuff, isn't there, about actually 
you know, what we are really seeing is is a miracle in, in, a, in a sense. The number of people who are, I mean, living, I think one in four children born now in the UK will live to past 100. I mean, it's extraordinary, but it should make policymakers, you know, wake up in a sweat in the night because I don't think a lot of Western countries are anywhere near ready for what that will look like. We talk, as we've said, you know, what one of the things that people think is going to feel make people feel really positive in the UK about care is that people can stay at home. Well, that is presupposed on a set of assumptions about the home being a positive environment for people and not an environment which is, you know, totally inaccessible in the context of many, you know, many English homes, you know, built 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago uh, with with not wheelchair accessible, not, you know, steep stairs and, and tiny bathrooms or whatever it might be. So not suitable for people and cold and damp and, you know, everything else that goes alongside that. So we, we haven't thought about those kind of alternative structures like housing and investment in housing. In fact, we continue to focus on investing in homes that are suitable for younger people and families, even though you know, all the demographics tell us that that isn't the growing group of people. And we haven't we haven't created a changed env- employment environment, for example, where we're encouraging people to think about continuing to work for another additional 10 years in their life, which we will need them to do. Because in Europe, in 2015, we had one retired person for every four working age people. By 2050, we'll have one retired person for every two working age people. You know, this is this is not a hundred years away where we've got time to change the education system. You know, we've got to think of some really practical things. But I do think that there there are, you know, you talk about the baby boomers, and I think that there's something that we as a care sector need to get much better at doing, which is to ask those questions to the people who will need care, and make it really clear to them you're going to need some sort of care at some point what do you know what would you in in the uk case put your money into you know what would you say was was suitable and you probably have these conversations donna with your friends what what would you like your future care needs how would you like them to be met my my dream is always a kind of co-housing type model where it's full of very interesting people that i would be able to talk. I, know I don't want to be on my own. I don't want to be living somewhere isolated from other people. I want to be right in the heart of a city centre and, and, you know, with lots of people. But the reality of making that possible, and this I set up my own co-housing unit now, is probably very limited because there are three or four of those type of initiatives around the country at the moment, and I, I don't know what the position in Canada is, but there's nothing there's nothing very inventive uh, about how we get people from where they are now, which is kind of I don't want to think about care, to a position where they say I'm looking forward to it. There's things that I could see that would be attractive. In fact, we're just about to do a piece of research around that, which I'd be happy to share with you at some time to sort of say what is it you're doing now that you absolutely must have in your life in 20 to 30 years time and what's the environment we can how can we make that happen would would love would love to see that research uh, one thing we've been talking a lot about more recently because our, our government really is in provincially in Ontario our government starting to mobilize and starting to think about 
okay, if we, if we, so we have 40,000 people waiting for care home spaces in Ontario right now. And that list is not going to go down. So what are they waiting for? So we really do need to reimagine and, and rethink what, quote, long-term care is and almost deconstruct it in a way that it's broken down into thinking about who, who the people really are. I find that our policymakers and others take a very paternalistic view and they decide this is what you shall have, this is what you need. And yet, as we think about the, the arrival of the baby boomers, to your point around choice, I don't think anybody's really asked them, what do you want? This is a generation that has, you know, now grown up with Starbucks where they can have 172 different ways to order their coffee. They've customized everything. They're using technology. You know, we've now have Uber and Uber Eats and Airbnbs. And uh, at least the, the, the latter end of the generation is quite comfortable with that. But they want choice and they want they want what they want the way that we want that. And and I'm not convinced that what we have today, that they want what we have. And so how do we very quickly pivot? Because we really don't have the luxury of time, to your point around the demographics and the, and the retirement numbers. I'm not sure. We're really trying to aggressively get our federal government and our provincial governments across Canada to work together to do some meaningful workforce planning because I don't think anyone's actually looked at who's who's going to be retiring. If you look at the incidence and prevalence of different diseases as you age, will we have enough oncologists for those who have cancer? Will we have enough orthopedic surgeons? Will we have enough mental health professionals? And I, I would think that we won't. So we're going to have to be pretty inventive on how our aging population is going to access care and professionals, uh, where technology fits. And we don't have enough time to build the bricks and mortar out. And even if we think about the, the training and, and replacement of a workforce, if it takes 10 years to educate a, a medical specialist, six years for a nurse practitioner, and the big pinch point is in 13 years, we just don't have the luxury of time. So, I, you know, I do think that we need the right leadership. We actually do need leaders who are going to bring us together and to mobilize us because this this does, it's, it's so precarious. But I uh, would welcome your thoughts as you think about the mobilization for change. How do we get there and not accept no? I guess the particular challenge for you is if you've got 40,000 people on a waiting list, the, the motivation for policymakers to think differently is, is not high. Because out of those 40,000 people, even if 35,000 of them don't want it, there's still going to be some who come along and, and need it, as you, as you rightly say, and, and don't have an alternative choice. I mean, I think, how do we get to a place where the leadership owns this in some way? I mean, it, the, the raw facts, aren't they, are that if as a politician, you know, if politically you don't engage with this age group in the same way that there's um, going to be more older people than there are working age people, they're going to be more older people voting than there are working age people able to vote. So, you know, it will move from being a group of voters that you might be able to ignore to one that you absolutely have to engage with and talk to. And that will be very challenging, I think, for politicians who like to go and open up exciting 
new businesses and buildings and, you know, roll their sleeves up in hospitals and all that sort of thing to start to think about, you know, what are the positive, what are the positive changes we are making for this older population? You know, if, if you start to think, you know, if you talk about opening up new factories in parts of the country in the UK where, where there hasn't been manufacturing for a while, of course, that's really important. And that really affects that community. But actually, you've also got to think about what is it that we are doing to sustain independent living and active engagement of older people that we're going to desperately need. And, and so I think it's that, you know, we need whether the influence comes from, you know, the health health side or whether it comes from other parts of the government and mechanisms that you wouldn't think about. So, you know, that business starts to take a very big influence. I mean, the, the, the purchasing power of older people, um, particularly those baby boomers, is really high. So politicians will have to take notice of if they want people to spend their money and, and want communities to be attractive for people to live in and be part, actively part of, then they will have to provide the facilities there that will enable people to access the care and support they need at the time they need it. And I think, I suppose that's the other difference, isn't it? That I think we'll have to start thinking about care. I mean, I had a, I had a great analogy and uh, see if you like this. And this, I think, represents where the, the UK kind of political thinking has moved from sort of state-based support to individual support. So the idea is that, you know, previously the government treated us all like cows. <laughs> And and we would be out in the fields and we would be happy to graze on the pasture and look after ourselves and, and, and all was fine until the winter came. And then they would bring us in and, you know, provide us with a nice warm shed and, and, and look after us. And now they want us to be more like squirrels. So we, we go out and we when we need we when we see resources, we package them up and we tuck them away somewhere and we can go and get them when we need them. And then we go out and we carry on as normal. And I think there's probably something about thinking about care, not as a sort of destination point, but as a as somewhere which gives you a kind of spa treatment, almost a kind of replenishment and a rebuilding and, and a, a recuperation and, and support and that support for families and carers and whatever, until the point where we can't, until the point that we do need constant support and and it may be that but what we certainly haven't got in the UK is a proper investment in that type of preventative set of services which help people to remain connected to keep mobile to to manage their health conditions and we're seeing some of that particularly managing your health conditions coming along with with technology so much more focus on people being able to manage their own diabetic and manage their own diabetes and blood pressure and all those sort of things at home and all that data going off to their GP who can kind of intervene more quickly and effectively. So some of those things will, I think, get us to a point where you can keep track of your own health, keep track of your own care needs in the same way and get the intervention you need at the right point. But it's vital that the intervention is there and we stop people precipitating their engagement with care as a crisis moment. I do like the analogy. And as somebody who in, a, in one of my previous roles, I used to run a children's mental health agency that had a farm and we had cows so <laughs> I, I, and squirrels and chickens and turkeys and pigs and goats. It was a, a different kind of care environment. Uh, so I really do welcome that analogy. I think you're right. And 
I agree that there there has to be a resetting of this. And I did want to touch on technology because that is something that the pandemic allowed to emerge as a, a as an important tool. So we had always been in Canada, very, very restrictive on the use of technology in healthcare, personal health information, privacy, risk, uh, the very low threshold for risk tolerance in how we use technology. Now, the majority of counseling for mental health, other than crisis intervention, is uh, throughout the pandemic, I think 98% of all counseling went virtual. Cancer consultations went virtual. We've seen the emergence of smart thermometers, <laughs> to your point around diabetes, uh, in-home um, dialysis. You know, it's it's so remarkable, the disruption that has occurred and, and the rethinking about how we provide our services just because of a pandemic. Well, yeah, and we're, we're seeing that with health now, that particularly because what's happened is we've got a very large number of people who haven't had the operations they should have had. So a real rethink about, you know, how do you do the, you know, now the technology allows you to have your hip and knee replaced on the same day. Wonderful. Well, then what happens? <laughs> You're sent home at the end of the day. Then what happens? And I think it's that bit is the kind of, you know, how the the frustration is where you rethink one bit of the system and then don't get to the rest. So I think all these health monitoring things are brilliant as long as the, the service that steps in can cope with it. So so brilliant to have online physio as long as there is a good understanding of, or as long as, I think in often in these things, as long as there is a pre-existing relationship. I mean, with I think where we'll end up with lots of this stuff is some sort of blended approach. What I haven't seen a great response to is an, uh, is an online version of care. We've had, the, as you say, the counselling services and the, uh, and that side of things but we stuck pretty rigidly, certainly in the UK, to say, for example, a home care response, which is just, which is going in and seeing people and, you know, and coming away again. And, th- and maybe the number of visits reducing. But what we haven't seen is sort of people going in, doing the personal care stuff, but then perhaps offering a hybrid phone call response and, you know, dealing with supporting somebody's mental health alongside that. So I kind of think we have embrace lots of things and particularly video conferencing and you know those things where where other health professionals wouldn't come in we've had to take some of that in and that's been really positive but I don't think we've really thought re I don't think we've really kind of rethought our offering with technology at the heart and I think that's I'm hoping that's to come um, but it's not there yet. I absolutely agree and and to your point around the the deferred procedures and diagnoses, nobody's really planned for that. So if the hospital recovery is three to five years and those delayed diagnoses, those delayed surgeries, and even the people who are still in the intensive care units on ventilators and have been for 10 months, nobody's having the discussion about where will they go? And who will provide that care? So there will be new pressures, different pressures on the on the hospital system, but equally pressures on where the care is going to be provided and by whom for those people as they transition out of hospital. It really is a moment of disrupt disruption. And how do we 
collectively work together instead of looking at it as a Jenga game, uh, build the image and the vision for and the picture for a jigsaw puzzle. And I think collectively, if we all come together, we can actually fill the frame and start to put the pieces together so we have this coherent view of what it all looks like. And I, I don't necessarily have confidence in a siloed sector that will get there. But if, if we find like-minded people who can work together, I think we can really challenge our new policymakers. Um, we have a, a new minister of long-term care uh, who was appointed at the end of June. And we met with him the other day and uh, he actually told us that he'd been on the phone with France. He'd been just happened to connect with somebody who introduced him to some decision makers in France around uh, how they're supporting their aging population. And we've encouraged him to have more conversations on a global level. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we too have a new uh, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care who's been in post for about three weeks Unfortunately, he's isolating at the moment um, due to having COVID, but uh, he'll be back soon. So that does create some other opportunities, as you say, to have a different discussion uh, with somebody who's not not lived through the pandemic in that same way. Obviously, they've lived through it, but not not a, not with health and social care as their responsibility. And I think I think the I was interested that you're saying about the te- approach to technology was very risk based to start with i think my worry is that the end at the end of this when it ever does end the whole of the care sector will have a risk based approach baked into everything that's done i mean we've had more <laughs> rules regulations guidance i mean i'm sure if we piled it up we would be you know getting near some significant canadian monument some what is the tower that you have in Ontario that I came to see? The CN Tower. The CN Tower. Yeah, exactly. So we, we you know, we would we would have piles and piles and piles of paper that are still standing as part of the way that you run care settings now, and they have risk written through them like a a stick of rock, as we would say. So that that idea that at the end of that you're going to throw it all away and come up with something creative that people are going to say, yes, that's the place for me. That sounds really exciting. You know, well, once you've read page 454 of the guidance, you might have a different point of view. So we've got to find, you know, we've got to kind of come out of this and come out of this fighting, I think, because I don't think anybody else is going to fight for older people's the provision of, you know, the, the fantastic quality provision of older people's care because my you know, worry is that the rest of the world will say, wow, God, we've got a lot of other things that are priority to get back on track, economy and everything else. And then another two or three years will pass and we'll be closer to the point where we just do not have capacity to support the people who need it. Yeah, I agree. And, and in my mind, it's, it's fighting for something. We've been, we're really tired of fighting against things. Yeah, I think that's right. Fighting for sounds much better much more positive. But but I think, you know, I am optimistic. There are those in the media, in the international media, who are, are want to write the more positive stories. They, they seem to be committed to moving beyond the darkness and the death. The public, I've, I've been speaking just to meeting, meeting people uh, in the street who, who simply say that they're not reading the media anymore because they are tired of the darkness. They want hope. 
and uh, that that gives me great hope. Well, I think those are things that are important. We did a great, uh, we pulled together a whole load of stories uh, in a book, which I should send to you, Donna, but called Caring in COVID, which was sort of 120 stories from members about just the amazing things that they had done in their services, um, with their communities, the residents, the people who are living and receiving care needs. And it and it's so uplifting. And it's of course, it's dark in the sense that it was a terrible time and people didn't know what to do. But wow, we have some amazing people who receive care and support and amazing people who work in this sector. And I just think, you know, when I do feel it's all... <laughs> You know, it's it's midnight and I'm on page 47 of the latest guidance. Uh, and I just think I just have a look at that and just remember just how incredible people have been, how incredible they are. And, and you know, we're going to need them to dig deep and be incredible through another winter and I think probably pretty hard year to come. But we can do, we can do some things about fighting for them and fighting for a really positive future for older people's care. Well, uh, I look forward to doing that with you. And uh, I really want to thank you for your time, Vic. This has been uh, a really thoughtful. You're always extremely thoughtful and always bring such uh, great perspective to everything with your depth of experience and knowledge, but also your compassion and your empathy. So it's, uh, as I said, it, it really is... Uh, been a privilege to to get to know you and to work with you. And uh, looking looking forward to more of that. So yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much. Thank you. My conversation with Vic about the seniors' care system in the United Kingdom really helped to shed light on the major hurdles the United Kingdom is facing currently and how the COVID-19 pandemic really illuminated the issues but also identified solutions. I'd had five key takeaways from my discussion with Vic. First... Although the United Kingdom's care system is funded and structured differently than our own in Ontario, they face very similar challenges to those we've been experiencing here at home. This includes who we serve, residents with very complex health needs, multiple health needs, and high levels of dementia. Second, In both the United Kingdom and in Canada, there's a real tension between managing quality of life and quality of care for seniors. What is long-term care and what is our focus? Vic noted in her comments that the strict lockdown measures during the pandemic didn't take into consideration emotional and mental well-being. And while the rest of the world opens up, seniors are still significantly restricted in their ability to move, to go outside, to receive visitors, and as a result, have been suffering in terms of their mental health and well-being. Third, the number of seniors in Canada is set to explode in the coming years, and our current system of care for our aging population is simply not ready for a demographic shift of this magnitude. In Ontario alone, the population over 80 will double in the next 13 years as our baby boom population ages. Our country will need a reset, a rebuilding of our workforce, and a shift in the way we view seniors' care in order to cope with the impending increase in seniors requiring supports. 
to foster positive change, policymakers around the world, not just in Ontario, not just in Canada, as we've heard from Vic, policymakers in the United Kingdom as well, and we've heard from Australia and other countries, they need to consider the perspective of seniors and respect the fundamental human rights of our aging population. Vic Rayner suggests decision makers consider how they would like to be treated as seniors and act accordingly. After three waves of the pandemic, people are exhausted from all of the bad news. Whether they are individuals who live in long-term care homes, who have family members who are receiving care in an intensive care setting like long-term care or care homes, we need hope. And we need hope now more than ever. And we all need to work together to create lasting change. Our hope will come through that collaboration and partnership and that shared vision. Finally, opportunity to build on our new relationships and learn from each other will be so important. And we now have relationships not only across our province, we have relationships across Canada, and we have relationships around the world. We don't need to recreate the wheel. We can learn from what has worked and what hasn't worked in other countries. In Ontario, as we begin to face a fourth wave, we are getting out ahead of it because we are taking those lessons learned from our conversations that we've had with Vic Rayner of the United Kingdom, Katie Smith Sloan of the United States, and Marcus Riley from Australia. We have been able to advocate for changes because of these relationships, and we need to build on those. We really are in this together. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate our show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our next episode will be airing on September 14th. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Stay well.